This is Mark chapter 11, the first 11 verses. Now, as they approached Jerusalem near Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go to the village ahead of you. As soon as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there that has never been ridden. Untie it and bring it here. And if anybody says to you, well, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord needs it and we'll send it back here soon. So they went and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street and untied it. And some people standing there said to them, what are you doing untying that colt? They replied, as Jesus had told them, and the bystanders let them go. And then they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Both those who went ahead and those who followed kept shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And then Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And after looking around at everything, he went out to Bethany with the twelve, since it was already late. May God add his blessings to the reading of his word, and you may be seated. Let me begin our approach to this particular passage and some insights to God and his character and what we can gain from that by asking a question, what makes you angry? I wish we had time to break up into small groups and I would want everybody to turn on their tape recorders so that I could hear these stories. But what makes you angry? I'll give you a few examples of a couple of things that I think might make some people angry. <clears throat> you know what really ticks me off personally? It's when the technology that is allegedly supposed to make my life easier actually makes it much more trying and difficult. Amen. <laughs> That's right. Says the tech team guy. Yes, indeed. It's like you're trying to do something that ought to be simple, and they'll say, in just a few clicks of the mouse, you can accomplish this online. And you try it. And you're trying to navigate through not very well-worded instructions, and after finally getting through five steps 30 minutes later, then you're almost done. You're ready to click finish, and this little pop-up thing says, oh, and by the way, you can't accomplish this online. You have to go into one of our offices and speak to somebody in person. Please call and make an appointment. Okay, so that's a half an hour. And then you hang up that phone and you call again trying to get an appointment made. And they put you on hold, of course, after navigating through a non-human series of menus. And then you're on hold and you put it on speakerphone so you can try to get some other things done. But your mind is whirring. And an hour and 45 minutes later... You have this very pleasant voice that comes on that's not the same voice that's been saying, we really value your phone call. Yeah, yeah right. But this one is a lady's voice, and you're thinking, maybe I finally got through. And she says, I'm terribly sorry, but we don't have any more representatives today that will be able to help you. You'll need to call and make an appointment and see somebody in person. Yeah. This may or may not have happened to me fairly recently. <laughs> And here's one you might identify with. Have you ever been out in public 
And it sounds like somebody is walking up to you and saying directly to you, hello. And you turn around and try to start responding to this person and they look at, at you like you're stupid and like you're from Mars and you realize that they have their Bluetooth earbuds in and they're talking on their telephone. I had that happen on our trip last October and I was going into the men's room at a truck stop. <laughs> I don't really want to have a conversation with you right now. <laughs> what about when you're in line at the ATM machine and there are two people in front of you and a person behind you and you've got plenty of time, you're digging out your card, first person finishes, the next person in front of you gets there, but they wait until they're actually at the ATM until now's the time they're going to start digging around in this cavernous purse for the card. They had two minutes of prep time. But no, they're going to wait until they get right up to the ATM to start doing that, and you're trying to be patient. And I have a self-soothing method that I've been working on. It's humming softly to myself because that helps calm myself down. We all need to practice things that can keep us from, you know, getting over the top with our frustration. And I'm... I'm probably humming to myself something like, Be still, my soul, the Lord is on thy side. Bear patiently the cross of grief or pain. And they're digging in some of the 12 zipper pouches inside this cavernous junk drawer of a purse, and they finally extricate that and put it in and get that done. Now, usually... I can self-soothe myself by humming quietly to myself. That usually works. But, but, if the person behind me in that line has been talking on their Bluetooth cell phone loudly in my ear, and if just before I had gone to the ATM, I had been trying to accomplish something that should have been simple online, and the technology would not allow me to do that and kept telling me, you need to make an appointment to go in person, then I'm probably going to be a little bit more likely to go into the snarky mode. Can I get an amen? All right. Anybody with me? I'm glad to know that I'm not the only one who suffers from these little problems of life. Some of those things are just everyday life situations, and they can, in fact, make us angry. But on a more serious note, and certainly more serious than just the humorous way that I've approached that, how about when you feel like you're being treated unjustly or disrespectfully? That's a tough one. Because you have this sense of justice and this sense that somebody ought to be a little more kind to me to show me that they at least are trying to make an effort at respecting me, but sometimes we don't get that. It's a tough one, and I think it's a lot more prevalent today than it has been, particularly because of some of the stresses that the last two years have put upon society. And I think that there's a, a theory that I have that dominant people can bulldoze their way through compliant people into leadership positions because you don't normally have the compliant people being raised up into the managerial spots. Very often it takes the stronger personality types who are going to be able to make decisive decisions and come through there. But a lot of those folks, unfortunately, are not very kind in the way they do that. And so you've got the bullies at the top of the pyramid here, and you've got the workers out there, and a lot of those bullies don't understand that when they're barking orders and saying, but you need to get this and I need it on my desk in 30 minutes, and you've already got a stack over here, and it's interrupting your workflow, they probably wouldn't like it if somebody told them to do the same thing in the same tone. 
But a lot of the people who are dominant in leadership positions like that, because we're human beings, have a hard time seeing that they've got a two-by-four sticking out of their eye as they're running around pointing out the specks of sawdust in somebody else's eye. And I've heard so many toxic workplace stories in this last two years. So I think it's a common thing. And it's easy to get really angry because of that. And how about on a global scale? We can pull back the camera and look all the way over at Ukraine where we've been cringing and angry and crying and just seething because we've seen such incredible injustice, inhumanity. So the tough part about all this anger that we're seeing is that when people give in to their anger, very often if there's an explosion, then that's something that they and other people regret later. That becomes a problem. I was talking several months ago about how the delete button is a gift to humanity. Because if we have typed that email and our keyboard is smoking and we know that we've got the retort that is just going to burn that person, we need to go and sleep on it, wake up, look at it the next morning and say, do I really want to send this email? And usually the better part of judgment, if you can get past the limbic part of your brain and get into the rational side, is that you need to put delete. Because very often we wind up doing things that we regret. Now, I'm paraphrasing one psychologist who said basically, when we let the emotional part of our brain take control over the rational part of our brain, the more stupid we become. <laughs> we end up making dumb decisions when we're allowing negative emotions to decide for us what our actions are going to be. Now, I know this is true. I confess that this is true for me. Normally, you haven't been the recipients of that. Those who live closest to me will attest that I do struggle with this from time to time. <laughs> but there's a lot of pride and selfish motivation for anger in many of us. So even though there's a biblical justification to be angry at the right times, at the right things, most of the human anger that I find myself associated with is not quite the righteous anger that we see in Christ. So we're going to look at the, the difference between those two and to see that biblically there is justification. There are certain things we ought to be angry about. I think we need to understand that God created all the emotions and he experienced all of them in Christ. In fact, he was tempted in every way because he was fully human and fully divine. So he understands anger and yet he sinned not. That's not always the case with human anger. In fact, the Bible says this. I put three different translations here, sort of a translation study, to show slight nuances in how we can grasp the concept here. Be angry, but. Be angry. So the first two words right there are be angry. This is a command. So I want you all to understand that God is commanding you to be angry, but do not sin. And then Ephesians 426, the first part of that, again, this one in the New Living Translation says, don't sin by letting anger control you. That's where you let the emotional side of your brain take control over your rational side, and you just give in to that. And then another one, the message, go ahead and be angry. You do well to be angry. So there again, you're being commanded, it's okay to be angry. But don't use your anger as fuel for revenge. And, and this is that second part that we didn't see in the first two, don't stay angry. Most of the other translations, don't let the sun go down on your anger. That's a poetic way of saying don't hang on to it. Don't seethe on it and ruminate on it and use that for revenge fantasies that you're going to work on for the next two months or two years. 
Don't stay angry and nurse it. And then there is a place for righteous anger. So we see that. Biblically speaking, we can say, be angry for the right reason. Deal with your anger in the right way, which means don't let it fuel revenge and don't explode on somebody with some behavior that you're going to regret later. And don't hang on to your anger. Those are three real simple, easily remembered biblical principles related to anger. But to get a feel for how to do this, we've got a great model, and that's where we start to see Palm Sunday coming into the focus. Because we can start to see that on Palm Sunday, Jesus has been responding to anger, and we're going to see sadness as well. Because a related question to what makes God angry is what makes God sad. And we see both sadness and anger happening on Palm Sunday here. So what makes God angry? We get a glimpse at the humanity of Jesus as he makes his way into Jerusalem on that Sunday in Passion Week. Joy and I, thanks to you guys sending us to Israel in 2018, got to walk down that same path that Jesus would have been riding the donkey down on the Mount of Olives. And we got to see how close everything was and how narrow that path was. Which means that if they had a hundred people around there, only about the first couple of dozen before him and behind him could hear what's going on. Everything else was just this thronging mass of crowd, kind of like you see on uh, Stadium Boulevard before a game at U of M. It's just this thronging movement of crowd. And so a lot of people would be excited about what was going on, even though they could not specifically firsthand see what was going on. But it was just a crowd movement toward Jerusalem going down on that narrow, fairly short path to the Kidron Valley down below, and then right across that valley, very short distance, to Jerusalem, because you could actually see the East Gate right there from the Garden of Gethsemane at the bottom of the hill. The anticipation and the excitement of this week would be a little bit like if you had a sports team that you've been rooting for, and they've had a phenomenal, unprecedented good season, and they're winning all their games, and they're undefeated, and they're going to finally go to the playoffs, and you're thinking, this is the year. They're going to become the national champions, and we're going to do it. We're going to finally be able to celebrate, and I'm so glad because I've been so loyal to my team. And then something happens. All that excitement and the pregame hype and the tailgate parties, and people are looking to all the pundits that are saying, yes, we think this is their year, and then something goes terribly wrong, and it just goes, and they're not able to run around afterwards singing, we are the champions, my friend. Instead, they're just kind of moping and going home. Well, there's a messianic misconception that factors into both God's anger and his sadness on Palm Sunday and during Passion Week. There's a misconception, and we get to see that because of some other detail in Luke's gospel. Uh, the guys were teasing me because I forgot to eliminate one of the two gospels I was going to use today. And since it's a very minor inclusion, I decided not to put it up there at the top on my title page. But we think that there's a new gospel called Luke Mark. And because I was going to teach both from Luke and Mark, and I am. I'm teaching from Luke, but I didn't put it on the title page. But I told him that was John Mark's younger brother. <laughs> and so there's probably also going to be a Matthew Mark somewhere along the way. So right now we're in Luke Mark. Luke chapter 19, verse 11, we get to see a glimpse into the mind of the crowds and what the people were thinking about that. As he got near Jerusalem, Jesus taught the people around him because they thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. 
Ah, so they had this misconception because they had borrowed from their culture rather than looking to see what the Word says. That's when we can get ourselves into trouble. When we start listening more to the culture than we do to God's Word, we get misconceptions too, and we try to push those off onto God. We try to project our idea even though it's a missed idea. And they thought that the great conquering hero was going to be the real kind of Messiah they expected to overthrow the government. They expected a coup. They figured that Jesus was going to ride in on a white stallion leading his army. They were going to overthrow the Roman government and the army that was protecting them. And that didn't happen because they missed some of the big parts, especially in the book of Isaiah, about the suffering servant and the fact that he was going to come and lay his own life down and that there would be suffering. He would have to endure the cross before he sat on the throne. But they thought this was going to be a very human-like takeover. Now, if Jesus had intended to take control militarily, he would not have been riding on a beast of burden in a little donkey colt. That was especially symbolic, and he chose to do that on purpose. For one thing, it's fulfilling prophecy. But for another, he's continuing to identify with the down and out and the poor. That was the kind of an animal that the poor people would have. They wouldn't have had a good fast horse or an army stallion. And it's showing, too, his humility because it was an animal that was humble. And so he's coming with meekness into Jerusalem to show everything that was predicted about Messiah, and he's fulfilling everything about that. So where does Jesus direct his anger? This is something that I found very uh, interesting looking all through the New Testament, almost every time when you see a confrontation and when you see Jesus getting irritated or ticked off, we don't see him uh, aiming his anger at the Romans. We don't see him going onto social media and dissing the government, probably because they didn't have a cell phone. But he doesn't do that. In fact, we see him aiming his discontent at his own people. Instead of raising an army and driving out the Romans, a day after his triumphal entry, so this would be Monday during Holy Week, he goes to the temple, and this time he goes into the courts and just throws a hissy fit. That's what we would call it. He was overturning the tables of the money changers there. And he is really unleashing some wrath, righteous indignation, in a way that only he is capable of doing because he's the one who, that should have been his house. And it was being turned into something completely apart from what he had in mind. I think it's okay for Jesus to do that because it's his house. <laughs> if we were to go in and do the same thing, I'm not sure it would have the same effect. And that's why I think it's careful for us not to point to that one incident and say, oh, it's justified. I'm allowed to have those fits like that. Jesus did. A little different situation right there. The real problem, as we see, based on Jesus' response here, is... The biggest problem, now there are problems, obviously. The biggest problem was not with the government. The real problem was with God's people. It's awfully easy for us, and I find myself tempted to do that as well, to point fingers at, for example, government leaders. And clearly, there are times in many governments when that's justified. And it's easy to point fingers at the culture with a broad brushstroke. Oh, it's the culture's fault. Well, it's easy to say the system is broken or the culture is broken, but that's really nebulous and it's kind of misty and it's not very specific. So we can say that, or Hollywood, it's Hollywood's fault. Boy, isn't that true. Man. 
And yet, that or the media, it's all the media's fault. We can point the fingers. And yes, those things are broken. We can expect them to be broken. We live in a fallen world. We live in a broken world. But where does God aim his anger? He aims it at his own people. We see it all through the Old Testament with Israel. When things got really bad, God would say some very harsh things toward his own people. God's intention for his people is to live out these kingdom principles, and that's what Jesus was introducing, bringing God's kingdom to bear on earth. He's introducing this kingdom that all believers are going to be a part of forever because we're going to be joint heirs. We're going to reflect godly character. If we were all doing that, all of us would be agents of his grace and peace and mercy, and we would all have that fruit of the Spirit, so we would have love and kindness and gentleness and all those kinds of things that would help make a difference in our world. When that doesn't happen, and when people are blind to truth or they ignore or deny truth, including truth about their own sin, things go south. And that had certainly happened then, and it continues to happen today. And on Palm Sunday, we see both anger and sadness because God is preparing in this build-up to that weekend. He's preparing to take care of the biggest problem the world knows, which is the problem of sin. It was sweet. It was bittersweet, but it was sweet to see the little children praising him perfectly. Hosanna! Hosanna! That was great. Little children shall praise him perfectly, and they did on that day as he was coming in triumphantly into Jerusalem. But fast forward just five days. Many of the same people in that crowd, instead of shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, are going to be shouting, crucify him, crucify him. So Jesus is on his way to fulfilling his purpose on earth, namely the atonement for sin, and that meant he had to suffer the cross. There's sadness over Jerusalem, and we see that also in Luke's gospel. A couple of details that Mark did not include. Luke 19 adds a little more detail. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, and you can see it clearly as you're coming down that mountain, you look straight across the Kidron Valley, and it's right there before you. In fact, you're just about at your, the top of the mountain. You're just slightly above the Dome of the Rock, and so you're looking right at it. And once you've gotten to the bottom of that and you're just about at the Kidron Valley, you're looking up in elevation a short distance, and it's right there in front of you. And he saw that. So basically, he's looking over that old city of Jerusalem, and from where he was standing back then, as large as it, or as small as it was, he could see the whole city. He was right there before him, and he said, If you, even you, meaning Jerusalem, God's city, the holy city, had only known on this day what would bring you peace. And he wept for them. So he's both mad and he's sad, and we learn a lot about sadness and anger from God. Since Jesus is God incarnate, he experienced every one of those emotions, and it means it is possible. This is something that's good for me to realize. It means that it is possible for somebody to be both sad and mad, and yet, you don't have to allow those things to drive you into something that makes you regret your actions later. You don't have to carry those things out into fruition in a way that's going to burn bridges or ruin your testimony or hurt somebody else's feelings so that you have to patch that up and it uh, destroys relationships. Parents, you know what it's like to discipline a child. 
Not fun. We don't like doing that. Sometimes we have to be the bad guys. And uh, I remember my nephew who once disliked the fact that I had to set him into timeout because he'd done something wrong by picking on his brother. And he disowned me. And he said, you're not my uncle anymore. <laughs> so we don't want to have to be the bad guys and discipline. But we have to discipline because we know that, oh, if you keep doing that, you could hurt yourself. And I love you. I don't want you to hurt yourself. And then there's sadness when they go ahead and deny that truth. And they do it anyway by disobeying what we said. And they do get hurt. And then we're weeping over them even though we had just told them. So there's sadness and anger that can play into that, that love-wrath thing. I've been studying about that in Romans the last few weeks in our growth encounter Sunday mornings. And both are present at the same time. They can coexist together. And some people think, oh, but God's not a wrathful God. He's a loving God. Well, he's both. And love can be the motivation for real righteous wrath. So we know what that's like. Both can be expressions of love for that child, and God sees us as his children too. And he's showing us, this is where I think I'm starting to see the personal application. He wants us to understand that when we're feeling that anger and that sadness, we need to understand where it's coming from and then say, okay, God, how can I represent you and your character in this specific situation so that it becomes redemptive? Because I want to make a difference in this situation, whether it's at work, whether it's at home with my kids, if I've got a coworker or maybe a fellow student that I'm going to school with. This is where it becomes really practical because we are agents of truth-telling compassionately. And amazingly, truth can make a big difference in these situations. Sometimes, truth-tellers can see a change of attitude and relationships are bolstered or strengthened or even made because you might not have known somebody. I'll, I'll briefly tell you about the thing that happened to me just this last week. Joy can attest to that. I was the one who was frustrated because I couldn't accomplish something online. I know, what a shock. And I was the one who said, okay, I'm just going to march down there, get there early, and try to go to an in-person because I could not get through on the phone to make this thing. And the thing that made me upset is that they're saying, now, if you don't get done what you have to get done within this certain time frame, we're going to charge you a fee. And yet they're telling me, we have nobody else to help you. And so I started feeling like I'm boxed into this place that I can't get out of. And so when I start to feel that way, that's when I start to feel that fight or flight, and it starts to get ugly. So we go down there. We get there early. Sure enough, there's a small line in front of us, not a terribly large line. We waited outside for 15 minutes and shivered for a little bit, and then we went inside. But we were thinking, and I was humming to myself, yield not to temptation, for yielding is sin. It's a new song that I decided instead of be still and know. And we were there, and sure enough, when we got to visit with this person, we saw the man coming out from the window, and unfortunately, he was not a pleasant-looking fellow. And he said and did some things on his way out of the lobby that was a little bit of a power struggle protest kind of a thing, in a way. And guess who we get? We get the lady who had just helped him. That was the second day that these people had been back into in-person meetings, and that was the first experience she had on her second day at work. So we're thinking, okay, this is going to be fun. And we fell into an unusual category, so I had to do a little explanation because I knew that not everybody was going to be aware of our, our situation. So I started explaining, and I probably explained too much. I probably should have just shut my mouth and listened first and answered her questions. And I could feel myself getting faster and a little bit, you know, 
the way I can do it. I'm smiling. I was smiling, but I was getting faster in my talking. And my sweet wife reaches over and just pats me on the knee. And I thought, yeah, okay. <laughs> I understand. And so the lady started asking further questions. And another fellow came around checking out to make sure everything was going well. And he said, they're going to get you taken care of. I know they're going to be able to solve your problem. And I said, I have total confidence in this lady and the others here. So thank you for that. And the more we were bantering, the more we were trying to put forward our graciousness, trying to be gracious in the face of not real gracious behavior, we saw her relax more. We saw her kind of take a few deep breaths. She sent off a very lengthy explanation of our situation to somebody else in the back of the building somewhere. And that person actually came to her to give her more information. So they got to the bottom of it. They figured out, yeah, oh, you do fit in that category, and this is our policy. <laughs> I didn't know that. And so they were able to do that, and we're going to send you back to wait again for just a few minutes, though, this time. You don't have to leave the building. You don't have to make a phone call. And then come back in again, and somebody else is going to actually take your application. I thought, yes. And the other lady did. We got it taken care of. What I see, though, is that in those situations and in all the situations that I spoke about, at work, at home, in school, we make a difference when we carry Jesus with us. When we carry Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit with us into these situations, we're making a difference in other people and how they behave. And we were bantering so in such a friendly manner with the people that we had everybody laughing in the waiting room before we went back the first time. And on the way back out, we said, thanks, they took care of it, yay! And we're trying to, to be friendly in a way that would hopefully lighten the mood for others who might be in a similar frame of mind that I was in prior to going in that. And I would also say, choose your wife carefully. Because if you marry the right person, they can really help you in those situations. But you see, this is practical. This is why I think it's so important for us to understand that everything God went through, including the pain and suffering on the cross, is so that our life becomes an example of his life and grace can go out and change the world. We are world changers because of his character lived out through us. Well, Jesus' righteous anger. There's a modern picture of what happened to Jerusalem and to the Jewish temple. On Monday... He walks in, he sees the money changers, things had become awful, they used to call it uh, a bazaar, and it was a bazaar bazaar. When Jesus entered that, he began driving out those who were selling. It is written, he said to them, he's quoting from the Old Testament prophets, my house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And we could use some of these verses to try to justify our own outbursts, but as I said, he's Jesus and he's righteous. We're not. So I wouldn't really do that. I would just avoid that and say this is a unique situation, particularly since we know that when he walked out of the building, God has left the building. Temple worship was never the same after that. And Jesus starts to introduce to us the new covenant. And I'll show you in a couple of moments here a very important concept that we see all throughout the New Testament, especially portrayed by both Peter and Paul. So to many modern righteous anger attacks that happen around there, people feel justified because we feel strong and powerful when we're being angry. But we're usually not doing a lot of good as we're doing that. I had told you a long time ago about the ugly incident, previous church, um, a deacon in the church who had had control for years. They had run off five previous pastors before I showed up. I didn't know all this. 
Tried to run me off as well. Had an ugly Sunday night meeting. Things got heated. He stood up. He was yelling at people. He had made up false accusations against me. It was a, it was a terrible ordeal. And I didn't know what else to do, but these verses were coming to mind. And I thought, man, this is a den of iniquity. This is not a house of prayer. And that's basically what I said. And I, I cut him off and pounded the pulpit and in my little portable pulpit that I had down on the main floor level. He was up on the stage because he had taken a big glass of water and set it up there and cleaned the pulpit. <laughs> and I said, you will not turn this house of prayer into a den of iniquity. I call this church to prayer. And I'm going, oh, Lord, I hope this is the right move. <laughs> but in order for people to pray, they had to turn around and they got on their knees. So that meant that every person in that church turned their back on this guy. And that set him off. He was screaming his head off. He stomped to the back of the room, had to pack up his video camera, which he had set up on a tripod so he could get evidence of all the stuff that was going on. And then he stomped out. But when he left the building, it was like Satan left. And the battle was won in prayer, and God took over, and it was like a revival started to happen in that little church. We saw such a wonderful season of discipleship and growth and baptisms and new families coming. It was an amazing situation. So this kind of a converse situation here that I, I mentioned that to say that in our case, back at that church, when Satan walked out, God filled the place. God came in. In Jesus' case, when he walked out of the temple, God left and Satan took over. And Satan thought he had won the day until, of course, the resurrection. But here's what I want to close with because it's an important concept for us to understand that it's not about the temple anymore, not the edifice, not the building. Everything began to change. After Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, the church began to take off as we read, especially in the book of Acts. Jesus' followers are building the temple in which God dwells, and it's not made with brick and mortar. It's not made of stone, stones. It's not made of human hands. There's a word here. It's called oikodome. It's in the Greek. Now, it might be translated, some try to translate it building. In some English translations, it says we're in the building. That's a verb or an adverb, depending on the tense. So what does a verb do? That's an action word, right? So if we're building something, we're in the process of doing something. It's not a noun. So he, he didn't say, I'm going to reinstitute something that's going to be a building for you all now. He says, no, no, I'm instituting a process in which you are the living stones and you are being built up so that you house me. We, believers, are the living stones. We are the temple. We are the place in which he dwells. Everywhere we go, there's where he is. And that gets to be exciting. And we also see that in A.D. 70, everything that Jesus predicted came true because even as he was weeping for those people and saying, oh, I wish you could find peace, Jerusalem was destroyed, as was the temple. All those stones were literally torn down. It's on this huge slab, and every stone was left on the ground in rubble. Let me read several verses for context as we wrap up. But you can see the key verse 21 on the screen. This is Ephesians 2 starting with verse, verse 19. Consequently, you are no longer foreign, foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, oikos, family, friends, associates. We're part of his family. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. He didn't say he's built on the foundations of the Temple Mount, but 
on the foundation of the people who are the gifts God has given us to help build us up. With Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. Again, a person. In him, the whole building, oikotome, that building process, is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. You are that temple. If you're a believer, because you're part of the family of faith. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. So wherever Jesus is, that's where truth is. Wherever you are, if Jesus is in you, Jesus is there too. Truth is there. Compassion is there. All those things that can help us become a peace-giving agent in situations that are very difficult, especially if we feel picked on or unjustly treated or disrespected or whatever's happening that causes us anger, we can make a difference because Jesus is in us. And greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Let me extend this invitation. To those who might want to accept Christ for the first time, I don't know if that's your situation, reach out to them. Confess sin and say, I need you. I want you to guide my life. There may be some of us that think, you know, I've just been sort of skirting the issue. I haven't felt like I'm on fire. I'm just sort of that lukewarm water. He doesn't want that. I want to be on fire for Christ. I want to live for him so that my life counts, even in my everyday interactions. I want to recommit my life to you. You can do that at this time, too. And there may be some who just want to be a compassionate truth teller in the face of conflict that you're walking through right now. And you're asking for God's wisdom and strength and his character qualities to be fleshed out in those situations. So let's pray, and you can take care of these things as we close. Father, I am so grateful that everything you did for us is for our ultimate benefit, and that we're still seeing the positive benefits in our world where believers start becoming the kinds of believers you intended for us to be. I pray that if there's anybody who's listening to these words and they say, yes, I want Jesus as my Lord and Savior, that they'll say, forgive me, come into my life and heart and mind, guide me into the, the way that you have for me, help me to be surrounded by others, help me on my journey, and help me to be transformed every day by your Holy Spirit to become more and more like Jesus Christ. And then for those who want to recommit themselves and say, God, I just want to become more on fire because I feel like I've been coasting. I pray that you would just kindle that fire in their hearts, the Holy Spirit fire, to say, yes, there's still work that needs to be done, and we can be a part of it. We don't have to throw up our hands and say, well, there's nothing we can do anyway. Our world is going to pot, but that's okay. Help us to be change agents where we are, where you've placed us. And to those who need to be a compassionate truth teller, and maybe they're going through some situation right now, and they want your wisdom, I pray that you'd give that to them. Just as James said, we had access to that. Thank you that when we're asking for wisdom, the good kind of wisdom, the righteous wisdom, comes from above. And we're looking to you for that kind of wisdom. Help us to make a difference in each one of these situations. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.